following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. continue in our worship with the reading of the word this morning, and I'm going to be reading Acts 8, verses 4 through 24 to you. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, McKinsey. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for that greeting. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here. Today's baptism day. I'm excited about that. I'm also wanting to let you know that this week uh, I'm going to head out to Chicago. So you can be praying for my family and I. We're going to bomb it in the car 
all the way out there, and then I'm going to drive back afterward. But it has been a long time. I started going to school out here in 2005. Uh, Allie and I got married in 2007, and from 05 up till now, I've always been in full-time school. But that ends on Saturday this week. <laughs> so that's going to be good. Yeah. I'm excited about that, so, but it'll be a long drive. I would appreciate you praying for me. Okay, we've been in a series on the book of Acts. We've been watching the church uh, take root in the world, the kingdom of God taking root in the real first century world. And today we have an interesting small anecdote, the short story that Luke tells. And I think that uh, it's, it's appropriate, we didn't plan it this way, but it happens to have some baptism in it. That works well for what we're doing here. And I think beyond that, it is extremely helpful for us as we think about being part of this church, ministering the gospel to one another and to the world around us in this day here in Portland. So I wanna start with the contrast and provoke you a little bit, not to anger, hopefully, but provoke you nonetheless, all right? I want to give you a contrast between two people and just kind of see what you think. So here we go. First, imagine a woman named Susan described this way, all right? If I was going to describe a person, and I'm describing this woman named Susan, I say, she is this woman, what's she like? What kind of person is this? She is amazed at the power of God, and she believes, and she has been baptized, and every day she is constantly learning from the New Testament writers, Peter and Paul and the apostles. My question to you is, is Susan a Christian? All right. Now, here's a man named Tom. Consider this, if I was going to describe Tom this way. Tom, he's trying to buy God's favor with cash, and he's bitterly envious and in bondage to sin, and his heart is not right before God. Is Tom a Christian? Most of us kind of wonder, well, the bondage to sin piece is tough to reconcile with faith in Jesus. So we kind of say, okay, there's two different kinds of people described two different ways. This short story that Luke just told, that Mackenzie just read, gives us the picture of Simon the magician. And, and he says in this story that our Susan and our Tom can be the same person. Simon is just one Simon. He's not two different people. He believes, he gets baptized, he submits himself to the apostolic teaching, and he recognizes the power of God and stands in awe of it. And he's living in bondage to sin and his heart is not right before God. <laughs> what do you make of that? That's provocative. But if you can get, get mad at Luke... Not at me, please. What do we make of this? Well, I think part of the answer, it's probably not the whole answer, but the part I want to look at today is in verse 20. 
I think there's a huge cue for us right there when Peter says to him, you thought that you could acquire the gift of God. You thought you could acquire the gift of God. You just think about that. The gift. Is it even possible to acquire a gift? Can you acquire or obtain something that is given? All right. We've got to do a little storytelling here. I like stories. They show better than they tell often. I think this story sheds some light on what it means to be truly saved by grace or by the gift of God and what it looks like to just be pursuing the awesome power of God to harness it for yourself. I would say that pursuing the awesome power of God to harness it for your life would be a great way to describe uh, something like magical Christianity. All right? Think about what magic is in the stories of our world today. I would invite you to think about Harry Potter or maybe Superman, all right? And, and maybe think about the difference between those kind of stories and maybe Lord of the Rings. Harry Potter, Superman, and those like him have these amazing powers. And what does it draw your focus on? I mean, when you're watching Harry Potter, you're like, gosh, that would be so cool to be able to do that. Or Superman, I always want to fly right through, I want to just fly through buildings, blasting, it'd be awesome. You look at him and you say, wow, if only I had that kind of power, I could do so much. So that kind of magic story, or story about magic, always orients your heart and mind onto the, onto the human who has power which could be really, really useful for accomplishing what I want. Now go to Lord of the Rings, a fantasy. Is there magic and spells and all? Yeah, there's all kinds of that stuff in it, but where is the human being in the story? Prominent, number one, not really. The power is there, there is a power, but the human being and all the different characters of the story kind of fades into one of the many. It's not the ultimate focal point. Your heart and mind are drawn into a greater power beyond, and it's not one that the human beings can wield. In fact, when they try to, it gets really gnarly. All right. Today, I think Christianity sees, sometimes many people see Christianity through the, through the lens of magic. If I do the right things, if I say the right prayers, if I get the right amount of people to say the right amount of prayers at the right time, then I can harness the power of God to accomplish my will. I can harness the power of God to heal my cancer. I can harness the power of God to cure my loneliness. I can harness the power of God to make my parenting better or my marriage healthier or whatever it would be. Don't get me wrong here. God heals marriages. He helps us parent. He heals diseases. We see that happening in this story. I'm not saying that that's silly. But start to think about the difference between receiving a gift from God or trying to acquire his power. 
I think you'll see it in this story about Simon the Magician. So if you're still there, we're in Acts chapter 8. We started in verse 4. I want to just touch down on the first few verses because that's where we left off last week. Those, few, those first verses um, are coming right off the heels of Stephen being murdered by a mob. It was a, it was a first century lynching that we saw happen last week. They didn't, they didn't hang him. They stoned him to death. So he had preached this gospel in the kingdom of God, and the people were really upset with it, and so they killed him with rocks and brutal violence. He was totally put to shame, wasn't he, in their culture. He wasn't even given a trial. They drug him out of town, and they destroyed his life. Now, if you're a Christian in that community, you're paying attention to that, and it's doing something in your heart and soul, is it not? Just try to imagine if it was one of us. You know, that's a big deal. He's put to shame, but notice how Luke in the opening verses reminds us that Stephen was not entirely hated. In verse 2, it says that some devout men, we might think of respected, devoted, pious Jewish men in their community, buried him and made loud lamentation over him or wept. They cried out. They showed him a great honor. I just say that to let you know that not everybody in the crowd saw Stephen as a criminal. Though they did lynch him or stone him to death, there were some who saw who he was. Even the apostles, though they're getting hammered by the rulers of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, they were widely respected by the populace at large. So Luke wants us to see the impact of this public murder as well a mysterious Jewish leader. We're going to learn a lot more about him as the story unfolds. But right now, his name is Saul. He seems to be on the sideline. He seems to be directing some of this. And he says, Saul completely agreed with the killing of Stephen. Then after it's done, Saul gets even more aggressive. And it says that he goes from house to house. I want you to hear house and then in parentheses, church. From house church to house church, he's going and he's taking men and women and doing what with them? Well, he's locking them up in prison. All right? He's locking them up in prison. So you've got to really try to feel what that would be like if it was our Christian community. Somebody just got murdered publicly. Now the law is after him. People are, there's house churches. You might think of going from community group to community group and pulling moms and dads out, locking them up in jail. Then we pick it up in verse 4. Now those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the word. <laughs> Is that not awesome? Is that what you would do? <laughs> Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them, the Christos, the Messiah. All right, just here's a little hypothetical. You're a Jewish mom or dad, you're sitting there at family time. Hey, honey, says the dad. You hear about Bill and Sue? They got pulled right out of their house church and they're locked up in prison right now. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's what happened. They're in prison, no joke. That Saul guy, he got super angry at him. He's taking it out on the churches. Wow, what should we do? That happened to Bill and Sue? Is it gonna happen to us? What should we do? Well, it looks like a pretty great persecution is on the rise here which means we could actually end up like Bill and Sue. We might get locked up for this stuff too. Or 
shoot, I mean, if we're going to be realistic, we might get killed, just like Stephen was. So I think we've got to really get out there and amplify our voice. Okay? you got to feel that. We don't feel that. They did. This persecution starts to drive people out to say, if this is the way it's going to be, we have to speak even more boldly. We have to get going. Really? Is that what we should do? Oh, yeah, that's how Stephen and Peter have been doing it. That's how they've been doing it. That's how Jesus was. We've got to start proclaiming this better, bolder, with the kind of life and energy that God gave us. Man, I hear that. Kids, get your sandals. We're going. The world wants to hurt us for living and proclaiming the gospel, which means that we have to do it even more and with greater courage. Let's go. Jesus is with us. I can hear that kind of conversation in this particular church. I want that for us. I want to help to lead this community into that kind of heart and mind. This world is not going to become more favorable toward Christianity. This is what we have to be prepared for. Are we in this or are we not? These guys are totally in it. They're getting persecuted, and the answer is we got to talk louder and bolder. Let's go. What was... What would be our response if Central Bible was shut down by law? If half of us were thrown into Multnomah County Jail, the rest of us scattered, how would you feel inside? What would you do? These folks got beat up and locked up, just like Jesus. And yet they get fired up for going on mission and living with him. I think most often we who are under threat, we have the instinct to find safety and it drives us to say something more like, oh, man, you know, all things considered, now's probably not a good time. Let's just not preach the gospel or talk about it too much like right now. Let's lay low, see how this pans out. Maybe in the future we can pick it back up again when things have cooled down. That is not what happened here. At least that's how Luke tells it to us. We might say something like, hey, Philip, is there a bushel over there anywhere? Yeah, why? I got this light. I got this light, but I want to hide it under a bushel. And Philip, he says, no. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. All right. Verse 4. Those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the word. Philip went down to the main city of Samaria, began proclaiming the Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what Philip had to say, as they heard and saw the miraculous signs that he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with loud shrieks, were coming out of many who were possessed. Many paralyzed and lame were healed, and so there was a great joy in that city. All right. He goes down to Samaria. There's a great joy in the city. Now, notice Samaria. This is still Jewish people. Sometimes we think this is the beginning of the Gentile mission. We're not quite there yet. We're still ministering to the Jewish community. But the Samaritan folks are like the black sheep of the, of the Jewish community. The, the mainstream Jewish folks don't like them. The Samaritans loved the Old Testament, but only the first five books of it. The rest of it they weren't really down with. And so... 
And then they worshiped in different ways and it drove the mainstream Jewish guys kind of crazy. They would like avoid their towns, they don't want to talk to them. You know the stories about the Samaritan woman and so forth. Well, here they are. Because they had a different view of the scriptures, their view of the Messiah was a little bit different. They spoke of a Taheb who would be a prophet like Moses. Sometimes they thought the Messiah would actually be Moses resurrected. So they too are looking for a Messiah but they're looking for them in different ways because they don't read the prophets. You see, the prophets talked about a coming one, a righteous one, an anointed one. They're just looking at the picture of Moses, but they're still very interested in this person, the anointed Messiah. So uh, we hear from, say, the historian Josephus, who's writing back in that time. He talks about how they were kind of borderline obsessed with all things messianic in their day. I think it's not surprising then that in verse 6, he says that they listened to him with homothumadzon, or in one accord. They listened to them all. You imagine a crowd where he's up there talking about the Messiah, and they're just, you know, they're just laser focused. They're paying attention to him. I think Luke is telling us they were totally glued to everything he was saying because he was talking about the Messiah, and they were really interested in that. The stage is set now. The audience is captivated by Philip. There's great joy. Philip's been doing these healings. Everybody's stoked. They're paying attention. Verse 9. Now, the story changes. Now in that city, there was a man named Simon, and he had been practicing magic and amazing the people of Samaria claiming to be somebody great. Hmm, notice. Luke says that he's a man who was a megan, a great. He claimed to be a great one, somebody who is great. This is a little bit interesting. I love, I love the New Testament context. That's what I've been studying for a long time. So you can go back and read Samaritan literature. I can't. I read people who read it, and they can tell it to me in English. But you go back and you, there's a Samaritan holy book called the Mimar Marka, and in it they talk about God, using the Hebrew language, they talk about God as uh, the power or the powerful one. That's the name they give to God. I don't think that that's some kind of major huge deal, but look at verse 10. All the people, remember, they're glued, they're watching them. All the people from the least, from the kids up to the grandma and grandpa, everybody who was there paid close attention to him saying, this man is, this is Simon now, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid close attention to him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. All right. I think Luke is sort of winking and nodding at us and saying they loved Simon so much, there was conversation in the community that said he might have actually divine power. They're almost just kind of associating the name of God with him. All right? There's a key here that we don't want to miss. Compare this verse we just read with uh, verse 6 where the crowd was doing the same thing. So the crowd is paying close attention to Simon, and the crowd was paying close attention to Philip, but their close attention was being paid for two very different reasons. With Philip, it was because of what he was telling them. 
about the gospel, about the kingdom, about Jesus. I think Luke wants us to see that they were stoked about Simon because he had a history of doing really cool stuff in front of them, really amazing things. And so now you have this picture almost of Philip and Simon vying for this same crowd, almost like they're in competition, but Simon has had quite a, quite a head start. He's been working his magic for a while, no pun intended. Okay, so verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he was proclaiming the good news, or the gospel, about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus, the Christ, they began to be baptized. Baptized. Both men and women. Wow. Philip's message is apparently quite effective and powerful. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. He stayed close to Philip constantly. And when he saw the signs and great miracles that were occurring, he was amazed. Here the one who everybody was amazed at, now he himself is amazed at the power of God. Got to pay attention to what Luke is not doing and what he is doing. Notice that Luke in verse 12 tells us that the people believed, and he tells us what they believed. The proclamation of the gospel, the good news. They believed in the kingdom. They believed in Jesus, the Christ. In verse 13, Luke tells us that Simon believed, but he doesn't tell us what he believed. I think that's a little cue. I think there are more. What we know for sure is that Simon has become a bit of a fanboy. All right, He sees these apostles kind of like rock stars, and he wants to be there next to them, sitting at their feet, receiving from them whatever it is, direction, teaching, we'll see you later, power. So he's there. He's in it. He's believed. He says, everybody's getting baptized. I'll get baptized. Yeah, let's do this. I want to be a part of what's going on here. And then that's the end of the first act in this story we're telling. Now we go to the, to the second and last half. Starts in verse 14. Act 2. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John down to them. These two went down and they prayed for them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. I know that this, this passage has uh, some meat to it. Maybe a little gristle, because you had to chew it for a bit. It's, uh, this will spark a lot of conversations about whether or not or how the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And there's the notion of a second blessing of the Spirit and so forth. That's a great conversation. It's a bigger conversation than I can have here today. So I'd love to have it. But for today, I want to I wanna just say what we can, just kind of apparently what's here. I want you to remember that Luke is writing this book to a person named Theophilus. And the fact that he includes this somewhat odd mention, it's odd, right? They got baptized and then they had to send somebody down from Tacoma to give them the spirit. You know, and it's like, oh, how does that work? Is they hold the spirit like in a cooler 
And you know, what is that? So it's odd, and, and we think differently today for sure. So I just want to say this. Luke is talking to Theophilus, and I think that it's so brand new, he wants Theophilus to understand that this H2O here in the tank doesn't actually have magical power in it or even spiritual power in it. It's just hydrogen and oxygen bound uh, pretty well. So I think that, I think we can at least say that. Luke is drawing some kind of distinction between water baptism in Jesus' name and the Spirit of God falling on a person. We can talk more about how this works. Uh, and, it's, and we have to be patient with each other as we do, but let's leave it there for today. We know he's saying there's a distinction. I think we can all at least feel the sense that we don't believe this, this water we poured from a faucet you know, came from heaven or something like that, or directly. Maybe it did indirectly. Now we're rabbit trailing. Here we go. This makes even more sense, I think, when you think about Simon, who did receive that water baptism, didn't he? He was baptized. But if you're thinking that the waters themselves hold spiritual power, then you would expect Simon to not be talked about as somebody who was still bitter with envy and in bondage to sin and his heart's not, right? So I think he's trying to help us know, yes, he was dunked. No, that didn't do what some think it does. If the waters of baptism are not in themselves a source of power, then we ask ourselves, what is baptism really about? Okay, if I go under this water, and it's not that the water does something magical to me, then what are we doing? What is the point? Well, let's continue, and then that's how we want to wrap it up. Pick it up in verse 18. This is the pinnacle of our short story. Oh my gosh, this is nuts. <laughs> verse 18. All right, now, Simon, when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He did what we would all do. He offered them money. <laughs> hey, can I buy that? He offered them money, saying, give me this power too, so that everybody I place my hands on may have the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver die with you, because you thought you could acquire God's gift with money. You have no share or part in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, turn around, repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that he may perhaps forgive you for the intent of your heart. For I see that you are bitterly envious and in bondage to sin. That's interesting. You try to feel, you got to try to get into Simon's heart and mind. Why does he want to buy that power? It's almost altruistic, you know, so that way I can give it to other people. It's almost, oh, that means you must care about other people. And yet, is that the picture we've seen of Simon thus far? And not quite. He's in this really interesting spot. Simon replied right after he says, May your silver die with you. You're in bondage to sin. You're, you're in rough shape, bro. You know? And Simon says, please, you pray to the Lord for me so that nothing of what you said may happen to me. 
Isn't that interesting? He wants to outsource the repentance prayer. You know? Why don't you repent for me? Simon hasn't quite connected the dots yet. And it's really problematic. It's interesting. I run into this idea, unfortunately, pretty often. The idea that the pastor's prayer is more powerful than your own prayer. That's an idea that comes from magical Christianity, not faith in Christ. Simon is stuck. Peter, Philip, guys, hook me up, says Simon. Give me this power too. It would be so helpful for my life if I had the power of God in it. If I were able to acquire that same power for living. It's interesting. He does not ask for the Holy Spirit. He does not ask for the transforming presence of the person of the Holy Spirit, i.e. God. He doesn't say, I would like to have God in my life. He says, I want the power. He asks for the power so he can dispense it to anyone on whom I lay my hands. One scholar, his name is Ben Witherington, he writes this, Simon must have thought, here is a technique worth purchasing, a way of gaining a share in the leadership of this movement. And you know, he says to him, you have no share in this matter or in this ministry or in this movement. Simon wanted to gain a share in it. This is the language of possession, mine. This ministry, I want a part of it for me. I think we're seeing the real heart of Simon exposed. And Peter's response would get him fired today from our nice church cultures. You know, may you and your money die. <laughs> I was like, geez, Peter, why are you talking that way? He's like, well, Jesus called me Satan once. Come on. May you and your money die. He says, you have no share in this ministry. And you want to know why? Because your heart is just messed up. It's not right with God. And how do we know this? Because God's salvation is a gift. God's transforming Holy Spirit in your life is a gift to receive, not a power for you to control or obtain. You thought you could acquire God's gift. Listen carefully here. This is really important. You cannot acquire something that is given. Better stated, you cannot acquire God's grace. And when magical Christianity meets grace, I think grace wins. Simon is an iconic picture of a sickness. When we don't understand the depth of grace, how, how deep it is, and when we don't understand the nature of grace, and what I mean by that is the nature of a divine being giving a gift to a human being, and what that calls us to, the nature of a gift and the depths of grace. When we don't understand that, we end up sick inside. Simon is an iconic picture of this sickness. He agrees with the facts. He goes to Sunday school every Sunday with Peter and Philip and the other apostles, and they're his, 
They're actually his teachers. He's not even reading about them in the New Testament. He's sitting in the room with them, right? He's, he's listening to the apostles. And he's baptized because that's apparently what you do in a faith-based community. But his heart is greedy, not thankful. His heart is wanting more for himself. He has therefore not found rest in the grace or in the gift of God. And Peter challenges him. You thought you could acquire God's gift. In our Bibles, we see the word grace a lot, especially in the New Testament. It comes from two different words, at least, and neither of them are particularly spiritual. It just means gift. We have invested a lot of spiritual meaning into it. But these guys were using it perhaps a little bit more normally, by the gift of God. It means that God gave us something. And just like you have not, who, who here has acquired their life? I didn't acquire my life. I, I just woke up here in the world, you know, after a rough experience being born, I'm sure. I don't remember it, but it was rough. But here I am. I've been given this life. I didn't do something to get it. I think grace is similar. It's a gift to you. He loves you because... He, he made you, not because you're awesome. He loves you because you're a miracle that came from him, God, your Father, our Father who is in heaven. And I think that this great love, and the New Testament says this, is most powerfully seen in the cross. This is love that Christ laid down his life for us. So we think about our life as a gift. We think about being born again in the Spirit as a gift that He gives. It's a grace. And all of a sudden, we start to understand it properly, and we start to think about what a gift received well does to us. There have been times in my life where I was in desperate need. A friend gave me a gift which saved me from that desperate need. Was I stoked about that desperate need being fulfilled? Yes. You know what it did to me more, though? It taught me about the nature of the person who gave to me. And that social bond that was formed between the giver and the recipient is something that has been far more valuable to me through my life than just getting out of that pinch. One time, our car was broken. We had no money. We just had one car. A friend paid for the repair. That was great. I'm stoked. That car's long gone, etc. But I remember the nature of the giver. When you're thinking about grace, that's what happens. You don't just get stoked about the gift. You get stoked about the giver. You think about what God has done. You are more excited about God's nature and his love for you than you are about the benefits of heaven or the benefits of resurrection or eternal life. Some of us haven't got there. We're actually still in a spot where we think the best part of Christianity is that I get to go to heaven. It's not. That's low rung. That's bottom rung. The best part of Christianity is knowing that the one creator God of all the cosmos loves you. Deeply. And infinitely. When you understand that you've been given so much by God, your heart 
changes. It turns to him. And we've talked about this for a couple years now. And you guys have been talking about this, some of you longer than I've been alive. Turning your heart to God. Turning your heart toward others. When you think about acquiring something, your heart turns inward, doesn't it? How do I do what I need to do to get what I want? That's what you think about when you're acquiring something. You're going to go shopping. What do I need to pay? When do I need to get there? What line do I need? What do I need to do to get what I want? When you think about a gift given, your heart turns outward toward the giver. Contemplating the meaning of the gift, the intent of the gift, the character of the giver. It is by grace you are saved, says Paul. And so when grace is absent from your Christianity, then you just have magical Christianity, which is a happy way to say horrible fake nonsense. <laughs> That's what I would say. I don't have time for horrible fake nonsense, and I don't think you guys do either. So what we need to do is continue to help one another put to rest once and for all the idea that we can acquire God's power to use for our will. We don't pray to God asking Him to do our will. We can pray to God and tell Him what our desires are, what our hopes and dreams are. We can ask Him for help. We can tell Him everything we hope to see happen. But we always follow Jesus, our firstborn brother, through Gethsemane where He says, here's what I want, please, but not my will, your will. Simon missed that. He said, I want your power for my will. That's what I'm hoping for. I want your power so that I can see my will happen. And Peter let him know that this was evidence that his heart was dying. It was getting wrecked. And I don't think we want to miss that. We want to say, God, my life is yours, not my own. And when we do, Things like baptism become more beautiful than ever. We're not going to be dunking people in magic water. The Spirit of God is not physically bound to the H2O here. But the Spirit of God is physically and spiritually and emotionally bound to each of the people that will be baptized today. We have five people that will be baptized He's transforming their hearts just as he's transforming our collective heart. And in their baptism today, they are saying, I will go under these waters as a picture of going into the grave with Jesus. Being willing to go into the grave with Jesus is not, that sounds great, I want my will to happen. It's saying, I will follow Jesus even into great suffering. It means I am dying to myself, being buried with Christ and in him. And then when we raise them back up out of the waters, they're being raised up into the life of God and into the community here. We'll have our baptizees, I don't know if that's a word or not, but I think it is, sit here just as a simple way of saying, outside of the community, into the grave with Jesus 
raised up in resurrection, and then they'll sit in with the community. This is what baptism is. For the men and women being baptized here today into this community of believers, it is a picture of Jesus' own words, not my will, but yours. It's a picture of receiving grace, not trying to obtain God's power for my will. Okay? We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.